0: Hello, welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 30, The Men of the Polis The ancient Greek dark ages lasted a long time. By the time writing was rediscovered, over 400 years had passed since the fall of the Mycenaeans. The 700s BC, though, were a time of great change and great development. It is during this century that the Greeks first inhabited what we now call a polis. This is the start of what we call the Archaic Age of Greek history, which lasted until around 500 BC. A polis, very simply, was a city-state. Each one was centred on a city, such as Athens, Corinth, Thebes or Sparta, and would also control the surrounding farmlands. Originally, the polis grew as a group of small villages working together with no real leader. As each polis developed, it was generally ruled by a small group of people, usually richer aristocrats, called an oligarchy. This changed over a period of time. Some of the oligarchs got a bit ambitious and wanted to rule on their own. These people became known as tyrants. We will have a little look at some of these tyrants a little later on. The aristocrats of the Greek polis were a bit like the provincial governors in Roman times. They had to make legal judgments and were in charge of ensuring that the gods were worshipped correctly, An aristocrat was also expected to be able to speak well in public and to dance and sing. Of course, they were brought up to be great hunters and riders. Most of the competitors in the early Olympic Games were aristocrats. The poet Hesiod lived in the times of the early polis. One of his poems relates to an argument which he has with his brother over who should inherit some of their father's things. Hesiod complains in his poem that the magistrates... The aristocrats in charge of the law had been bribed by his brother, so that his brother got the inheritance. He refers to the lawyers as basileus, which is the Greek word for king. These people were not kings as we know them today, though. So, what did a polis actually look like? The word polis originally meant just the built-up area around the citadel or central fortress which protected a town. In Greece, this was usually built on a hill or mound, so that it was higher than the rest of the buildings and on the edge of the town. The Greek word for edge was akros. This was combined with the word polis, and so the Greek name for the citadel was the Acropolis. The most famous Archaic Acropolis is still standing today in Athens. Surrounding the Acropolis would be houses, temples, and then farmland. In later times, a polis would also have a marketplace and places of entertainment like theatres. There were no city walls in the early polis. If they were attacked, people ran to the acropolis. People still needed to live close to a source of food, so farmers were very important in the polis. The Greek polis was not just a city-state and farmland surrounding a citadel, though. It also came to mean the men and citizens of the city-state – It was a place of justice and of people. Sometimes, if a city was attacked, the people would all leave and found a new city somewhere else. When this happened, the people simply thought they'd moved their polis. They hadn't created a new one, they'd taken the old one with them. The city-state had a defined border. Inside the border, all land belonged to that polis. Outside the border, land did not belong to that polis, but probably to another one. Usually the border was a physical thing, like a range of mountains or a river. This was not always the case, though. Sometimes the border was marked by people. Near modern Athens, a boundary stone has been excavated. On one side of the stone is written, This is Athens, it is not Megara. What do you think is written on the other side? Yes, this is Megara, it is not Athens. So, how big was polis? The largest polis was, of course, Athens. It was in control of the whole of the region of Attica. All of the people of Attica were called Athenians, even if they lived in towns or villages quite a long way from Athens itself. Attica was about 1,000 square miles in area. Most polis were much smaller, and there were over a 1,000 of them. Most of them had populations up to 25,000 people. Athens was maybe 10 times the size of the standard polis in its heyday. Of the 25,000 people of the average polis, only about 5,000 were citizens. This means that only about one-fifth of the population were citizens. So what was a citizen? Who could be a citizen? And what were the rest of the population? Citizens with full legal and political rights were all men. All these full citizens had to have parents who were also citizens. Having political rights meant that they had the right to vote, to be elected into office and to carry weapons. They had to fight in the army if the polis went to war. There were also citizens with full legal rights who were not allowed to be elected into office or carry weapons. These were the women, wives or female relatives of full citizens, and the children. These people still had a pretty good life. Citizens of other polis who chose to live in a polis which was not their own also had full legal rights but no political rights in their place of residence. These people, called metics, could not vote, could not be elected into office, could not carry weapons and could not serve in war. They otherwise had full personal and property rights and had to pay taxes as if they were citizens. The lowest class of people who lived in the Pollies were slaves. They were owned by citizens and were completely controlled by their owners. They had no rights or privileges at all except those given to them by their owners and these privileges could of course be taken away without warning. The Greek polis civilization was very successful, but this success brought its own problems. The population began to grow, and by the middle of the 8th century, the population was getting a bit too large. Greek farms were frequently subject to crop failures due to too much rain or not enough. Hesiod wrote that an archaic Greek farmer would have to borrow goods from his neighbour if he had a poor harvest. If that farmer failed to pay back these goods, he could get into debt and lose his farm. Due to the sharp increase in population, good farmland, which had always been rare, became very rare, and there was not enough to support all of the people in Greece. 750 to 600 BC in Greece was marked by terrible famines, and by 600 almost all of the farmers in Athens had lost their property and worked as slaves on what used to be their own family's land. There was no way this could continue. The Greeks needed more land and they needed better land. The only problem was that there wasn't enough good land in Greece and all of it was already under the control of one polis or another. There was nowhere to expand into. So the Greeks did the only thing they could do. They sent people out to colonise other parts of the Mediterranean world. At the same time, the Phoenicians were also out colonising... It became a bit of a race between the Greeks and the Phoenicians as to who could get to various bits of Mediterranean land first. The Phoenicians colonised areas of what is now Spain and went as far as Gibraltar. They colonised the island of Cyprus and founded a city in North Africa, in what we now call Tunisia. They called their new African city Kartadast. It was soon to be the most important city in Africa outside Egypt, becoming the centre of an empire... The city remained independent for hundreds of years until a Roman general called Scipio Aemilianus led a victorious invading army against it and brought it into the Roman world. We know the city as Carthage. The Greeks settled in Macedonia and the area now known as Albania. They founded cities in Asia Minor. They established colonies in Italy, building the city of Cumae. They expanded onto the island of Sicily. They settled in Spain and in Libya in North Africa. They even settled in parts of the Nile Delta in Egypt. They travelled up the coast of the Black Sea and founded cities there. Before setting out to colonise foreign lands, the Greeks sought advice from an oracle. Worship of the gods was very important in archaic Greece, and nothing was done without a positive answer from one of them. Worship of the Olympians was central to life in a Greek polis. Sacrifices were made to the gods, usually animals or birds, Each polis had a calendar of festivals to the gods, and different festivals were held in each polis. The ones held in honour of Dionysus were usually the most fun, involving parties and an awful lot of strange behaviour. Each new colony, we must remember, was not founded by the Greeks as a whole. No, each one was founded by people from a particular polis. The new city would adopt the same customs and worship the same gods as the people in the city which sent them, If the colonists were from Corinth, the people of the new city did exactly the same things that the Corinthians did. If they came from Athens, then they did what the Athenians did. Not everyone who went out on a voyage to found a new colony went voluntarily. These expeditions were usually led by a noble, and some people went along willingly. Many of the settlers, though, were forced to go. Not only that, they were not allowed to go back to the city which they had come from. There is one report of people called slingers, standing at the dock as the colonising ship sailed away. If anyone tried to return home, the slingers had to sling rocks at them. The settlers were forced to make the colony a success. Usually, there were no women on the colonising voyage. This meant that the settlers had to drive away the local men in the new lands. They then took the women as wives and started families so the new cities would grow and prosper. Most of the new cities were formed where the farmland was so good there was plenty of food for the new populations. Some, though, were founded in order to trade with other civilizations. The city of Massilia was founded in an area of what we now call southern France. It had access to the local rivers so that goods and grain could be carried and traded. This city is now called Marseille. One city in Spain was just called Emporion, which means trading place. The new cities, because they were founded from nothing, were better planned than the original ones. Excavation of Greek cities in Italy and Sicily showed careful planning. There were temples, there was always a shrine to Hestia, goddess of the hearth, there was an open gathering place, which was later also used as a marketplace, called an agora. People who are afraid of large open spaces are called agoraphobic, which comes from this word. Colonisation spread the Greek language and Greek writing far and wide. There was an increase in the availability of luxuries like saffron, linen, silver and horses. Life became better for all Greeks, no matter where they came from or where they lived, as goods were traded between one Greek city and another. Some Greek cities, such as Corinth, founded a large number of overseas cities, The people of these new cities still felt themselves to have strong bonds with the cities from which they originally came. They also did most of their trade with the home city. This was great for cities like Corinth, which suddenly had a lot of allies in foreign places and access to a lot of foreign goods. After a while, though, the Greeks began to see themselves more as a single group of people. By 650 BC, a new word had appeared. This word was Panhellenes, which means all Greeks together. This cooperation between different groups of Greek people would become very important when they faced foreign enemies. We know quite a lot about the founding of the colonies because Thucydides wrote about them, telling us when they were built and which was the founding city. The evidence from archaeology seems to back up what Thucydides said. The famous Greek philosopher Plato, writing many years later, described how to decide where to found a city and where exactly to build the polis. He said the first thing to do was to decide where the sacred places of Zeus, Hestia and Athena should be. The next thing to do is build an acropolis and build walls around it. He then goes on about how to divide the farmland and other land fairly. It is clear there was a pretty good plan in place for founding new colonies. The time of colonisation, roughly up to about 600 BC, is also known as the Greek Renaissance. This means rebirth and it is a time when Greek culture and art reappeared. Fine sculptures began to be created for tombs. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Hesiod wrote his poetry. Hesiod was a farmer from Boeotia, and most of his writing gives advice on farming, among other things. Some of his advice sounds good today. If you want riches, he wrote, do these things. Pile work upon work and still more work. He meant you will only become rich if you work. Very hard. He described when things should be planted. When the Pleiades, daughters of Atlas, start to rise, begin your harvest. Plough when they go down. For forty days and nights they hide themselves, and as the year rolls around, they reappear again. Make prayers to Zeus and Demeter. Here he is telling us when during the year crops should be planted and harvested. Some of his advice is a little odd, though. To sow the seed in the ground... Go naked, he says. Strip to plough and strip to reap. Perhaps naked farming was popular in archaic Greece. The fact that a farmer from Boeotia had the time and learning to write poetry, though, shows that life was an awful lot better than it had been during the Dark Ages. Virtually everything improved. Trade became more sophisticated and coins were used for the first time. So the Pollies prospered and the colonies were founded. By 600 BC the civilization was strong and some of the larger polis began to become more powerful. Things began to change. The tyrants were replaced by a different kind of government. In the next chapters we will find out a bit more about two of the most important polis. Before we leave this chapter though, let's hear about a couple of the tyrants. Today we think of a tyrant as someone who rules on his own without being elected or chosen by anyone else and rules really badly. Tyrants like Saddam Hussein or Kim Il-sung are usually feared by their own people and hated by the rest of the world. In archaic Greece, though, a tyrant was simply someone who held undeserved office. This meant they ruled without anyone having chosen them. It does not mean, though, they were necessarily bad rulers. Most of them actually ruled quite well. Some of them, however, were real characters. Corinth was the richest polis in archaic times – in the early 7th century BC, men from the family known as the Bacchiade ruled the state for a single year each and then gave up ruling and passed it on to the next man. A man called Kypselus was the son of a man called Aetion and a member of the family. He decided he didn't want to take his turn but was going to rule for as long as he wanted. He took power for himself, became tyrant and expelled the rest of the Bacchiadi. According to Herodotus, the Bacchiadee had heard two prophecies from the Delphic Oracle, that the son of Etian would overthrow them. They planned to kill the baby once it was born. However, Herodotus said the newborn smiled at each of the men sent to kill it, and none of them could go through with the plan. The baby was, of course, Kypsilis. Kypsilis made the prophecy true. Corinth had been involved in wars with Argus and Corcyra, and the Corinthians were unhappy with their yearly rulers – At the time, around 657 BC, Cipsilus was in charge of the military, and he used his friendship with the army to expel the Bacchiadee. He also expelled his other enemies, but allowed them to set up colonies in northwestern Greece. He then increased trade with the colonies in Italy and Sicily. He ruled for 30 years, and was succeeded as tyrant by his son Periander in 627 BC. This was not really allowed. There were no rules in place about sons following fathers in power, but Periander ruled for an even longer time. Periander took some advice from Thrasybulus, the tyrant of Miletus, who instructed him to get rid of anyone who he thought had any chance of taking power from him. He took the advice to heart. Periander sent young boys from rival families to be tortured in Lydia. He murdered his own wife. His son Lycophron found out about this. Periander had him exiled from Corinth and banned anyone in the polis from helping Lycophron. Later he changed his mind and agreed to make friends with his son. Lycophron agreed to be friends if Periander agreed to abdicate. Periander accepted this and said he'd go and rule in Corcyra instead. The people of Corcyra heard about this and murdered Lycophron so that Periander would not come from Corinth and rule them. They had obviously heard all about him. When Periander died, his nephew succeeded him. The nephew only lasted three years, though, before he was overthrown. Some of the polis retained tyrants for many more years. Two of the most powerful, though, found other ways of governing themselves. In the next chapters, we will hear about the rise of the great cities of Athens and Sparta. So, until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.